It was interesting to think, okay, well, if these works naturally change in ways we can't control, what length should we go to to kind of keep them as they are? Or should we let them die out and does it devalue the work? I'm Ben Davis, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Today we're going to be talking about a relatively new and novel career within art, one you might not have thought of because it didn't even really exist until recently, and that is the conservator of new media art. Anyone who has been to a museum recently will know that contemporary art comes in a dizzying array of forms. An artist today is as likely to be working with computer code or cutting together video in Adobe Premiere Pro as they are to be toiling in front of the easel. At least since the 1960s, artists who want to stay relevant have felt the need to explore the latest technology, even as just what counts as the latest technology changes at a faster and faster pace. This churn of experiments with art and technology is now old enough that it has its own history, which is where the field of new media conservation comes in. My colleague Joe Lawson Tancred recently had a feature looking at the field and talking to a variety of key figures within it. What fascinated me about the subject is how what seem like literally technical questions open onto much bigger debates about what art even is and what it even means to preserve it. You'd think that art from our near past would be easier to grapple with. It is one of the symptoms of the sped-up nature of our times, that it might actually pose more challenges than art from the more remote past. Joe's essay even seems to suggest that the problem is only getting more intense, even as this whole new specialist field develops to deal with it. Joe Lawson Tancred, thank you for joining us on The Art Angle. Hi, thanks for having me on. Joe, you are a very busy writer. You've written multiple stories about very important things in Europe just in the last couple of weeks. But we're talking here about a feature you wrote that was about something a little less maybe immediately newsworthy, but something that for me is very interesting and opens on to all these philosophical questions about what contemporary art is. And it's kind of a glimpse into the big underwater submerged iceberg part of art, the stuff you don't see on the surface, but that really tells you a lot about what contemporary art means in the institutional context. So this is the question of conserving new media art. And since it's not something everybody thinks about all the time, I just wanted to know, how did this topic come on your radar? How did you first start to think about this? So I was at a retrospective of a great new media artist, Jake Elwes, at the Gazelli Art House in London. And the artist is about 30, so quite a small retrospective, but one of the works already didn't work. Really? And that's a 2016 work called Digital Rispers. It's a small Raspberry Pi computer connected to a screen and then a speaker, and it picks up treats from a sort of few-mile radius. It shows them up on the screen and it rispers them out of the speaker, so that's why it's called Digital Rispers. Yeah, actually, we have a clip of what that sounds like right here. Now, 
there you can hear how that artwork is supposed to manifest in the galleries. And what called your attention to the fact that it not all was right with it? Well, the work stopped working actually in April this year. Twitter cut off free access to its API. And I believe it also got rid of the function where you could even filter treats by location. So naturally the artwork stopped working and it's sort of been retired by Jake. The cutoff date is now 2016's 23. And what we're seeing in a way is actually just a document of the artwork that once was. It now plays the recording that we just listened to on a loop. That recording was made in 2019. I guess seeing this document of an artwork It made me think, okay, well, what other works in this room might expire quite soon? I mean, so much of when we're working with tech, so much of what we're working with doesn't really belong to us or we're working with a big tech corporation. And as we've seen with Twitter, so much can change so quickly. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a real new problem. I mean, obviously, Twitter now X, I guess, is in the news. And so is obviously... Uh, newsworthy as a subject for art, but at the same time, it's almost like that very topicality, the very fact that it's a very pervasive technology that also the decisions by these huge forces beyond an individual artist's control. The very things that, in a way, someone like Jake Ellis is commenting on are also the things that means that the whole rule set that they're working with or commenting on can change in a heartbeat. It's a new historical problem. Yeah, exactly. And I thought it was interesting to think, okay, well, if these works naturally change in ways we can't control, what length should we go to to kind of keep them as they are? Or should we let them die out? And does it devalue the work if that happens? So that was kind of the starting point to do a bit more research. So... I think maybe we should even start a step back. We're talking about the conservation of new media art in this relatively new field of new media conservation. But maybe since not everybody has the same vocabulary, let's even just start a step backwards. What even does the term new media art mean? In this sort of field, there's quite a lot of terms bouncing around digital art, also time-based art. One conservator pointed out to me that These are all kind of a curator or conservative's terms. These aren't really how artists themselves tend to think about their art. Right. But I like new media art as a category because it's such an umbrella term and it's kind of really saying it's anything that's not a traditional medium. So that extends back from video art and works that were emerging many decades ago to the emerging technologies we see today, VR, immersive art. AI, robotics, internet art. Kind of, to me, it seems like already the openness of the term, like new media, media that is defined by its newness, its recency, that already suggests some of the problems that you're talking about. That these are, in a way, if you're working with something like painting, that's a very stable technology with a very stable set of concerns. And conservators can learn a certain kind of narrow skill set and more or less be able to deal with the preservation of a wide number of phenomena. But in this field, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, it's almost like each new artwork requires its own rules from a conservator. It's like a new problem that they think about in a new way. Yeah, completely. Like, I was impressed by basically everyone I spoke to because the sense that you get of keeping pace with technological change, which is obviously accelerating, I had 
conservatives talk about having to learn new coding languages and then also this kind of issue of AI. AI is a good example of a technology that's become more accessible because there's kind of interfaces and code libraries that simplify building AI models. But actually beneath all that, if anything, it's just getting more and more complicated. I can see how conservatives would be expected to keep up with the knowledge of a machine learning engineer. I think it's a big undertaking. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's almost by definition, you don't have to just keep up with the latest thing, the new and new media. You have to be kind of an archaeologist of the recent past and understand how things worked at each of these time periods. How old is this field? My impression is it's sort of arisen, you know, as these artworks have been made. But my impression is definitely that it was quite informal, a bit ad hoc at the beginning. And maybe like around the 90s, approaches of best practice kind of began to emerge because I think internet art is quite an interesting example. A conservative was really trying to press upon me. Back then, I mean, people didn't create this stuff to last. They were just playing around with what was available to them. Something might work one day and break the next. So it took a while, I think, culturally for us to see these digital objects as something that we want to save and then have to build an approach around that because that really wasn't the kind of starting place that artists or anyone were working with. Yeah, and it raises a whole new series of questions. Like, internet art is often interactive, and so it's like, are you preserving the ability to interact within the present or a history of interactions with something historically, which would have been very different in the 90s when people were just getting used to those experiences than they are today when people live on the internet like it's the air that we breathe. Is this a very big field? What are the key places where people are talking about these questions that you looked at? The impression I got from everyone is it's very much not big enough. I think there's a great high level of expertise, but that is very concentrated, predominantly, I would say, in the US and the UK and Germany. And even within those countries, specific institutions stand out. So the Guggenheim is great, Tate in London and the ZKM, which is a kind of leading institution in Germany for everything to do with new media art. And I spoke to one of our conservators. You spoke to Morgan Strickett, the head of digital conservation at the ZKM or the ZKM. And she said something to you in the article that really stood out for me and I guess relates to what we were just saying about Jake Ellis's work with Twitter or X. She said, we have less trouble with the 90s artworks than with today's artworks. And that to me is very fascinating. You'd think that as history went on and there was more expertise in this field and more people working with new technologies, it would become easier. But actually, it seems to be the reverse. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely the big story that came out of the research was with everyone I spoke with, a kind of sense of urgency. The people I spoke to would speak with an almost kind of rosy fondness of old hardware, the kind of monitor that they might be able to crack open and fiddle around with the parts, tweak it, fix it, kind of figure out how it works. That was an experiment or a challenge for them. And as anyone who has a phone today knows, they're constantly slowing down, need updates, breaking the phenomenon that we call planned obsolescence. And that's created quite a big 
I guess, a kind of fork in the road. If you're a conservator now and you know you can't fix a piece of hardware, you have to go with either plan A, which is buy lots of copies of it in the hopes that if one breaks, you can then use another copy. And then if that doesn't work or you run out of spare copies, then they have to do what's known as migrating, which means moving the file onto a new piece of hardware that it's not written for. And that can involve literally rewriting the whole artwork, going to the source code and writing that again, which is a very invasive approach and obviously quite difficult to do without an artist's input. I had one quite interesting example, Ian Cheng's Bob, which is currently at the Julia Stoschek Foundation in Germany. I spoke to the conservators. This is an artwork that I've actually written about and is a pretty famous example of artificial intelligence where Cheng creates this almost digital terrarium and there's this creature inside of it that grows and changes depending on how visitors interact with it and seems to have kind of a life of its own and really was viewed, and I think it's still viewed as kind of a very contemporary work of art. You know, it's on the cutting edge of this technology only a couple years ago, but you're telling me that there's already like problems with preserving it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's made in 2019. And like any collection really that's serious about new media arts, the foundation had to ask for extensive documentation, source code, multiple spare computers. They all have to be from a specific manufacturing period because the file is built to run on one specific version of Mac's operating system. So those computers are frozen in the hopes that they won't update, because if they do update, then... (laughs) The dreaded, unwanted Mac update is like the the new, you know, scourge of art. Yeah, and one thing that they also told me about how they exhibit the work is that you're supposed to be able to interact with your phone, but the app with which you can do that doesn't actually download now on most people's phones, so they have to leave iPads out in the exhibition space so people can use those. But I think that shows kind of how quickly the way we interact with these works is having to adapt. Right, particularly with artificial intelligence work like this, it's exploring what the idea of the machine as a kind of autonomous entity. I just think it's so fascinating because on the one sense, the artwork is deliberately giving you this sense of the technology as kind of having an independent agency that has this new power, but at the same time, it's extremely fragile and dependent. You know, just two years on, it ends up being more of an allegory of how changeable and fragile some of the creativity that emerges on top of AI can be. I was speaking to one conservator, I mean, with a painting, how it survives is very reflective of how well you look after it. But she was saying, even if you put this technology in storage, it will break down. Technology just will break down over time. So there's really nothing you can kind of do to freeze it. And she also said, which I thought was quite interesting, is that if you think of like a marble bust, the artist that made that wants it to last as long as possible. But these artists are really interested in how emerging technology works, are interested in hijacking it, testing it, breaking it. These are the kind of ways that a lot of people are making art. And if anything, they're the opposite of thinking of longevity. They're just thinking about 
really experimenting in this hyper-specific moment. So that's really making a conservative's job harder because it's not even like the artist is, you know, necessarily always at the outstart thinking this is a digital artwork that needs to last for decades. It's a very experimental practice a lot of the time. There's a quote from somebody in your article who says, we should just be aware that it's going to take more energy than collecting a painting or sculpture. And it's just funny to me because that is a double meaning because I, I think literally this is art you have to plug in a lot of times. It does literally require more energy, but then just more intellectual energy. To me, it's really similar to how in school, the dreaded time when your teacher brings out a projector or something is tries to show a film in class, which is always means that like at least half of your class is going to be taken up with, you know, uh, an art history professor trying to figure out which cable goes in where <laughs> into the uh, machine. Like I think that is now a general aesthetic problem. And it's even stranger, as you say, because a lot of these artists are Artists being artists and not necessarily technologists, they're approaching technology critically and often like commenting on the breakability or obsolescence of these technologies. Like the Jake Elwes artwork is a good example of an artwork that is about people's ability to surveil you on Twitter. Mm -hmm. That totally changes when the way data moves around on Twitter uh, changes. Mm -hmm. So you already touched on some of the different approaches to the subject of new media conservation. I think it does help to have more examples. So maybe talk a little more about another example you bring up in the article, which is Julia Scher's Predictive Engineering from 1993. Or I guess its date is 1993 ongoing, which is important to question of preservation. What was perhaps most pressed upon me by everyone I spoke to was that there is no one approach to new media conservation and it's very case by case. And I think what that kind of raises for artists, but also curators and conservators is if you can't preserve everything about an artwork, what part of the artwork do you need to preserve to replicate the core experience for a viewer? Julia shares predictive engineering, which is at SF MoMA. That's basically a conceptual work. It's trying to create the sense of being surveilled, a kind of unsettling atmosphere within the museum. And as you said, it was made in 1993. But if they show it now with a CCTV camera from 1993, that's just going to look like an old artifact. And it's not really going to be scaring anyone. Right. So they kind of re-engineer it every time they exhibit the work. And I imagine that is an, an easier job for a conservator, but still is very much about identifying what it is that you are conserving. I mean, in that case, hardware is a means to an end, but sometimes it does have a value in and of itself. I think a lot of video art, the size of the monitor, the bulkiness, the way it's stacked, its placement, its presence in the gallery are all part of a sculptural quality that's very important to the work and also kind of pins it in a time and a place so that we understand the work's context and some works like that have literally been completely remodernized inside, but that's all hidden and they look exactly the same as they did in the 1990s or even the 80s. 
Right. You talked to the conservator Cass Fino Radin about this work by the important video artist Gary Hill called Tall Ships that was shown at Documenta in 1992. It's a video installation, but how that lives is really interesting. That basically had to be completely changed internally, rewired. Everything about it is different, but you wouldn't know it looking at it, which is the goal in that case. Yeah, Fino Radin says, we went to great lengths to ensure that if you saw it at Documenta in 1992 and you saw it now, you wouldn't know anything had changed at all. Behind the scenes, everything has changed. We migrated the work from playing off 16 Laserdisc players and a kooky old PC. It's incredibly modernized now, which is just a totally different way to think about what art is than what you sometimes normally see at a museum, which is really about the material embodied object. In poking around, I see that there's this term variable media, which I think is really important, the variable media approach to conservation, which I gather came out of the Guggenheim in 1999, thinking about some of these approaches. And I'll just quote from the Guggenheim website. It says, the variable media approach integrates the analysis of materials with the definition of an artwork independently from its medium, allowing the work to be translated once its current medium becomes obsolete. By identifying the work's behaviors, how it's contained, installed, performed, reproduced, and strategies, storage, emulation, migration, and reinterpretation, artists, conservators, and curators can advance the preservation of new media art. And I, I think that just is really interesting in that it involves questions about what the artwork is. Another way you get into this in the article is the question of VR, which has been really trendy lately. I think that really puts a line under this. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, VR is a super interesting example because I think museums love VR. It's a great way to engage people, but it's very difficult to collect. An interesting kind of counterexample that does come up in my article is Memory Theatre VR, which is a 1997 work by an artist, Agnes Hegedish. No headsets were around then, so it's a very different idea of VR than we have today. Right. But you would have a little model in front of you that you navigate around using a 3D mouse, and then what you're doing is also beamed up onto the wall in front of you. And that actually was sort of maybe an ideal case scenario for new media conservation. The 3D mouse is still used by research universities, so that could be a replica of that could be bought. And then... The computer that it's built on, which is a very powerful SGI computer, does still work, but preempting the possibility that it might not, the conservation team at the ZKM are in the process of basically rewriting the entire artwork onto a Windows 10 computer. And because they are able to compare it to the old work, they've made sure all the 90s aesthetics are the same. They've slowed down the work so that it's mimicking the slower processing times that you would expect in the 90s. So it's really recreating that experience. And what's happening now with VR is headsets are apparently a kind of nightmare for curators and conservators. They go out of date, kind of, I was told, sometimes within six months. So either you're spending a lot of money buying spares or you're spending a lot of money migrating the work. And what is particularly interesting is... Say you have to migrate the work every two years, 
when you're migrating that to an updated version of the game engine that it was built on, it naturally updates itself. So it looks newer every time you do that. So say you're in 2040, that experience we have with the 90s artwork doesn't exist for those people because they don't know what it looked like now. Right. Everything is basically new all the time. And we lose a lot of that kind of historical narrative that we can otherwise like have in a museum where we see the development of these works. Yeah, and I think that brings us to maybe the final point I want to talk to you about. There is this question of what even art in the museum is for that is raised to this question. And I think the Agnes Hegedusch versus the Julia Scher that we talked about earlier, or the Gary Hill, really captures this in the sense that is this a historical document that's talking about the way people approach technology at a certain time and has a certain aesthetic effect that was something that emerged maybe out of the limitations of the technology, but limitations can sometimes be really generative and exciting. In a lot of cases, artists are really inspired by things they can't do. If you think about the genius of silent film and how much people got out of creating an international language of film with the limitation of the fact that they couldn't have audio, you know, and the infamous proposition, you know, to like colorize the first 15 minutes of The Wizard of Oz would destroy this really important artistic decision of the film. So there's the question about whether you're respecting the limitations or commenting on the present, because I think that one of the whole reason that artists work with technology with new media as opposed to old media is because they want to comment on the new and part of the character and the quality of the new is that contemporary media is everywhere, but also mercurial moves very fast. And sometimes artists want to talk about that very fastness and fleetingness. And I gather that in some of the research you did, this came up in at least one case that there are conservators who want to like preserve these as history. And then there are artists who are perfectly fine with letting things pass away. And so you end with the example of Anna Riddler and her work, Mosaic Virus. So tell me a little bit about that and the thoughts she left you with. Her thing is exploring emerging technologies like AI and blockchain. And a bunch of her works, the one that mentioned in the piece, Mosaic Virus, that exists just through documentation. But the point that she made was... This kind of expectation that art can't expire is not something that we've had historically. And she's very inspired by land artists. They knew that what they were making was finite. Right. And so they documented it and they expected it to live on through documentation. And I thought it's an interesting idea because the land art is sort of as much a victim of external and independent forces as a tech work that relies on software. It's interfacing all the time with code libraries and software. And I suppose her proposition is that if we could see those updates as just a natural evolution, much as the weather happens, and that if anything, a shorter lifespan or a longer lifespan of an artwork is that artwork's own record and observation about technology. It's part of the work, you could argue. And perhaps holding on to the idea we might have of a painting that we want to be able to admire it might not be that relevant. Perhaps the artwork is just a historical event that we can think about. Yeah, it's in a way a sort of a beautiful thought. These are a set of problems 
and contradictions and difficulties that emerge at a time when almost like technology and media has become our nature. You know? uh-huh. She's looking to land artists who are commenting on geological time and the weather. It is almost like people live inside technology like it is nature. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Totally. Well, I think this is like a fascinating conversation. We could go on and on, but I think let's leave it there. Thank you so much, Joe, for being here. You've given me a lot to think about with this article and this conversation. Thank you. That's it for this edition of The Art Angle. If you enjoy the show, please be sure to rate or review it wherever you get your shows. It helps people to find us. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili and Caroline Goldstein. See you next week.